I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything, yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, well, buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's, it's so real to this day. I, I I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? (laughs) We did it guys. One that came out of nowhere. It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Hello, my name is Demetrius. This is Jason. Morning, everyone. And you are listening to Spaces Podcasts Express. Thank you for coming back, everybody. Jason, you missed out on a great conversation. We were trying to make it so that you could uh, join that last podcast on uh, Boxable, and then you got called out, I think, literally like 30 seconds before we hit record. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stuff happened. I was bummed, too, because like, like I originally brought that one, and I was like, we got to check this one out, right? Yeah, you submitted it to me. <laughs> yeah, go figure Which brings us to what we're going to talk about today. The reason you got called out is a field injury, right? Yeah. So I don't know what you can go into specifics about that, but we'll talk just in general about, you know, what happens, especially you have way more insight into this, you know, being in the field, what happens when somebody that's um, on the construction side gets injured and sort of what you know, there's OSHA and I imagine other things that come into play and ton of paperwork, I imagine. So you want to set the scene sort of of maybe high level of what you can talk about with that last event? So there's a couple of different things that, that come into play. So the, the most important thing is whether or not it's just like first aid sustainable um, or if you literally have to call like an ambulance or do that type of thing. Right. It's levels of severity. Um, and based off of those levels of severity, it depends on which like government governing bodies get involved. 
Um, and ultimately the one that you don't want to have get involved is OSHA, uh, because <laughs> then, it's going to cost you. <laughs> yeah. And then before we move on from that, just to explain what OSHA is, it's, uh, what it stands for at least is Occupational Safety and Health Administration. Um, so they're the board or organization that pretty much l- looks and has oversight over all employees, um, that have health and safety. Yeah. During, yeah. during their occupation. Yeah. And so ultimately, you know, one of the key things to know about that too, and if you're in the trades, you know, it's a key point is uh, they're self-funded purely by, uh, what do you call it, incidents or um, charges or those types of things. So it's not, it's not like a government taxed funded type deal. Mm-hmm. Um, it's literally supported by the amount of incidents they have and what they charge, if that makes sense. Hmm. So they have a, um, they have a desire or a need to incentive um, yeah they have an incentive to to make sure that they get these things nailed down if you will hopefully i'm saying that pc enough because um, there's a whole other way i'd like to describe that um, but um but no i mean o- overall i think it's a good thing because it comes back to the same idea that there's a lot of trades before that that you know really didn't look after the health and safety of people um, as much as they probably should have and some of their, you know, PPE, personal protective equipment and stuff like that isn't good or isn't isn't kept up to date or it's not supplied and all these other kind of things. So a lot of it goes into that. But yeah, so ultimately the way it shakes down is um, it's levels of severity. Um, and if, for instance, the one that I was dealing with the other day, uh, it, was a, it was a pretty good injury um, to where they had to call in, you know, not like nobody was dying or anything that matter, you know, situation, but to where they had to call an ambulance. Right. Yeah. So the minute you have to call any type of government service, an ambulance or whatever it is, they automatically will send a report to OSHA if it was done on a job site yeah. somewhere around or whatever it is. So what that does is it, at least we have policies and procedures that we need to go through. We have crew leaders on every job site. Um, and so they have protocols to go through. They have a booklet in their trucks, you know, all those other kind of things that they need to do to report it A to the, the builder trade partner that we're with, B back to our office and our safety team. Um, we have a, I don't know what the title is of the gentleman that's in there, but he's the one that runs all of that. Um, and then automatically gets involved with, you know, the authorities and stuff like that. So OSHA. This one, you know, luckily was deemed kind of just a, everything was correct. All the guards were there, all those other kind of things. Um, there's nothing that really could have been done. It's, it's an accident, right? And I think the, the whole idea is it's not that you're trying to eliminate or avoid taking care of someone. What, what I think we get from a business standpoint mixed up in is who's taking advantage of somebody versus who needs to be taken care of because something truly happened on the site that, you know, needs to be. Uh, rectified. So unfortunately for us, you know, the individual hurt himself decently, you know, on his hand Mm -hmm. um, and needed to have some things fixed and whatnot. And it was successful. So that's a good, that's the first and foremost thing. I mean, we always want all of our guys to go home to their families every single night. Right. Yeah. Um, Be able to come back to work the next day to make a living. So, um, and he'll be able to have a full recovery, which is really good. But one of the issues, and a lot of people don't know that, but if you cut, you know, the hand pretty deep, it, it bleeds really well. Um, just because of where it's at, because of gravity and everything else. And, and so, you know, you, you, you know, I'm a bleeder, right? Uh, <laughs> they start to leak. So, so that happened and caused a little bit of a problem, you know, the other day. And um, like I said, most important thing, I'm happy he's, you know, he's okay. And that's, that's the biggest thing. And he's a, he's a good dude. Not that they all aren't, 
but his, he was, you know, more concerned with when can I come back to work? And it's like, no, it's, it's okay. Let's, let's get you fixed. Yeah. We'll take care of that part. There's a reason we all have insurance for, you know, good companies have insurance and, and this is why, you know, yeah. for, for, for things that are just kind of freak accidents. So ultimately OSHA will be involved and they'll, they'll go and they'll look at everything that we were doing, which we took pictures. We did all that kind of stuff and whatever. And it was on a table saw. So luckily the guard was on, you know what I mean? So, because a lot of the guys, I don't know if anybody, you know, listening or you yourself have ever used a table saw. Yeah. Um, the first thing we do at home, like, I don't even know where my guard is. Like, you know <laughs> yeah. what I mean? Like I, I have no idea. Yeah. And, and so it's, it's funny because you're having your conversations with your teammates saying you have to do this on site, even though I'm like, I get it, but this is what we have to do because of the site we're on and the regulations that there are. And, and we have, you know, our tailgate meetings that we have to go through that go over safety. You know, I think it's once a month or every other week or something like that, every payday mm-hmm. um, to kind of go and readdress different things the guys are doing. And so we've, we've really created a more robust program than we've had in the past in the last couple of years yeah. because we had an incident at our plant um, that was, was pretty good. Um, and we didn't have the response to the injury. Those protocols set very well. Hmm. to going into, you know, how do you handle a biohazard, which is essentially what that becomes, you know, in, in the affected area and those types of things, yeah. um, you know, all that kind of stuff. So, and that one was a pretty good investigation that we had to go through. Um, and we showed everything that we had. And for the most part, they, they were pretty much happy with what we had, wanted some better things. And we received a small fine, um, which, you know, if you can get a small fine from them, like <laughs> you're doing it, you, you did something right. Yeah. Um, because some of the ones that have been handed out in the past are just gnarly, like not to us, but that we've, that we've you've heard, heard about, Oh, I mean, you, you could drop a company, you know, just in, just in what they're doing. I mean, we, I've heard of some in the couple hundred $150,000 type of deal. And because they just literally neglected all the things that you're supposed to do. And that, um, so. that fine goes to OSHA. And then is that utilized for basically lawsuit payouts or is it just to them as an organization. Yep. Self-funded. So you have, so no matter what to be in business, you've got certain levels of workers comp you have to have. Right. Um, And most of our builder partners dictate what those levels look like. Mm -hmm. So that kind of handles all that anyway. Right. And then, so when you have incidents though, you know, for people that don't know, it's based off of, you know, like um, your credit score when you get a a loan, right. For like a mortgage or whatever, any kind of loan, your credit score kind of determines what type of rate you get. Right. Um, for workers comp, there's what's called an X mod. Um, the X mod rate is like incidents per whatever and that type of deal. And that's essentially your credit score, if you will, that determine how much you pay for whatever level of uh, workers comp you want. So that's always the biggest thing that you're trying to watch is your X mod. So that's why we actually put in place, I can't remember the name of it, but it's this number that you call and they'll literally like video with you right then and there about what type of is this a first aid type situation? You know, and it's a physician's assistant, doctor, whatever it is, you know, registered. Um, is this a first aid thing you need to do or do you need to call the authorities type of deal right away? And that's actually helped us tremendously because if you think about it, like um, most people, when they get hurt, right, it's like they freak out, you know yeah. what I mean? And, and, and which is fair, yeah. right? I mean, it's a human response. You see, you know, red stuff splurting. It's like, okay, time to go. Yeah. Um, whereas they're like, look, can you do this? Can you do that? You know, and, and, um, you know, is it a bandaid situation where you didn't have to go to a clinic? You know what I mean? Like that kind of thing. Yeah. That's helped us a lot in, in helping to stop, you know, like tie to some of those things because you know what I'm talking about primarily is on the cabinet side, but like even on the flooring side, you know, we get guys that complain about knee pain. Hmm. 
you're when I was a catcher in baseball, I'm gonna have knee pain. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, you know that. And if you're doing flooring, guess what? You're on your knees. You're going to have knee pain at some point. So, so there's only so many things you can like try to curb, you know what I mean? So that, that first initial call when there's a potential industry uh, injury is huge um, and help you to do that. But yeah, once OSHA gets involved, man, it's invasive. Let me ask you this. When you start a company that's sort of, that's on the construction side, aside from just the normal requirements of workman, uh, workers comp and sort of safety that OSHA requires you to do, is there any guidance as far as if you want to go above and beyond or anything like that? Or is that just basically research and how you set your own systems up? It's primarily research. So if you go and you look like if you were to type in or Google like OSHA, California, right, or something like that, there would be ad after ad after ad of different people that are willing to give you like to set you up with the right information for your trade, if that makes sense. And they're going to essentially sell you, you know, um, their um, booklet or um, data sheets and all these other kind of things. Right. They'll put together the whole thing that you need to comply with OSHA. So I, I could never do it. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's no way like I could do it and say, okay, this is everything that I need to do. You know, all your MSDS sheets, all these other kind of things, how you, you know, if you get exposed to these products, you know, per the MSDS, what you have to do otherwise, you know, all these other kind of things. So there's companies that specialize in that now, but if you're in California, especially, and then it, like you, you have to have, you have to be able to show that you're doing the steps, if that makes sense. You know what I mean? At a minimum, but no, when you, you don't have to do any of those things. You just do the bare minimum. You could, you could roll the dice, you know what I mean? But the problem is if you don't have those um, procedures and stuff in place and something happens, you're going to get hammered. I mean, hammered, you know, and, and you don't want to say that's the reason why you should do it, right? The reason why you should do it is really just to take care of your team. Mm -hmm. But I'd even tell you some people are just naive to, to what they actually have to do. Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and you kind of learn the hard way in a lot of those things, right? Naive um, in that they they don't think that it would happen to them or naive in that they just honestly don't know that there's certain things that they should be doing. Yeah. I mean, like, so if you look at it, like I mentioned the term tailgate meeting, right? So we have forums for tailgate meetings that happen every two weeks on a payroll period and it covers a different topic every two weeks. Mm-hmm. I mean, so sometimes it's safety, sometimes it's lifting, sometimes it's, you know, how to use a box cutter, you know, I mean, like, <laughs> yeah. no, no joke, like, you know, it's those types of things, how to operate power tools. And it's a page front and back usually, and, and then everybody signs it, you know what I mean? To try to show that you're continuing to try to educate your team on how to be as safe as possible. Yeah. And, and, and we've done that for a lot of years. And that's why it helped when we went through some of these things where it's like, look, like we're trying to do this. We've handed out back braces. We've handed out knee pads. We've handed out goggles. We like, and we make people sign for all these things. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, the other thing that we had to watch out for that was a big deal um, is there's a whole thing about silica. So silica being an issue from a respiratory standpoint, right? Well, think about how many things in our industry like are made up of some type of silica, mm -hmm. like stucco, right? So how, and you've seen these guys apply stucco with guns and stuff like that. And the guy that's mixing the bags and the big old hopper, like all that stuff that's pluming is silica. So it's like, they literally want that guy to be like in one of those respirators with, you know, so think about a guy that's doing that with a respirator full, like dress on out in the desert in 110 degrees. Yeah. I mean, think about this, right? So you have that, like from a flooring standpoint, the thin set, the grout, cutting tile, 
you know what I mean? If you're dry cutting tile, like all these other kinds of things, there's, there's silica. So it became a big issue. So you had to start training guys on how to handle, you know, silica based products and everything else. And generally it, it comes out of the fact that there was a lawsuit somewhere, right. That somebody's, and so it became a problem. So it's, it's a lot to keep up on. Yeah. Constantly you know, searching yeah. Uh, for reports and news and all kind of stuff. What's the new thing? You know what I mean? Is that sort of a risk management role or is it something 100%. else? hundred percent. Okay. hundred percent. And I mean, risk management slash safety or, or whatever, right. Whatever you want to call it. But I mean, like even, you know, even D like it, it gets pretty, it gets pretty crazy, but you'd be like, you have to supply your teams with water. Right. Yeah. Um, so they have, and everybody's seen them. You see the construction trucks where it's got the big orange, like Gatorade jug. That's kind of like strapped to the back of the truck. Mm-hmm. And you're like, Oh, that's great. Right. You got tons of water and everything else. Well, do you haven't, do they have their own reusable jug thing off of that? You're supposed to have all these little paper cone cups that you make like, um, you know, uh, snow cones in. Remember yeah. those? Like they should be disposable, which means you got to have 50 of those. Like, are you supplying enough ice cold water? Like, I mean, it's this whole thing Yeah, that, that surrounds water where you're thinking, I'll just give them a case of water or the guy's bringing a, you know, igloo jug or those things like yeah. soccer sideline style. <laughs> Not good enough. And so really what it's become is one of those things like, what do they want to bust you for is what it feels like at times as a trade, even though you're trying to do it as well as you possibly can, what do they want to get you for? Right. If I give a guy a back brace because they complain about lifting or whatever, and he decides not to wear it that day and then go lift the tile and OSHA shows up, they're like, haven't you? Oh, I didn't know. I don't have a back brace. We talking about, we gave it to you. (laughs) So it's like, it's literally a, um, the way it is, it's almost like guilty until proven innocent. Yeah. Um, in that situation, you know, it feels like that in California, no matter what you do, but, um, <laughs> but that, that in that manner, it's, it's pretty, pretty tough. So let me add, and there, there may not be an answer to this, but is there something like in your mind on the design side that would assist in decreasing safety issues? Or is there something on the design side that you have encountered that creates safety issues? So building in general is a safety issue. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not like no, no like no joke. Right. Um, and the reason I ask is because we're designing in a vacuum and not necessarily thinking completely of how it's going to go together and what someone has to contort their body into to make, you know, finish a certain area or something like that. Um, so I've had instances where there's like, you know, a condition where a roof hits another mm-hmm. roof at a certain part. And it's like, how do you expect somebody to get their hand into this area to do, to finish this, this spot? So the, I, I just brought it up to yeah, sort no, of that's a good point. So like bring that to right. some of our listeners' minds. Maybe, maybe this is a couple of good examples. Townhome construction, right? So two and three story houses. And some of these houses now on the third floor, will have, you know, the kitchens, right? So all the way, like, depending on the, the configuration, right? Well, they'll put in these, like, huge cabinets, like, huge pantry cabinets. Mm-hmm. The switchback on those stairs, mm-hmm. we all know is ridiculously tight. Yeah. And then you walk into the entryway, and it's like a four-by-four four entry with huge walls everywhere. How are you going to get a nine-foot cabinet up there? <laughs> yeah. You can't get it in the door, you know what I mean, like, to do this. So there's, all like, I have a, I have a, a job site specifically actually where we literally have to cut one of the cabinets in half yeah. to get it up there because there's no way to do it otherwise. I mean, unless you're going to try and reach lift, reach lift, boom it through all the windows, which is not going to be feasible. And then you just destroy windows and cabinets. Right. Yeah. So we run into, and then not only that, they'll spec like um, full slab shower walls. Mm-hmm. How are you going to get slabs 
You know what I mean? These heat, like think about how heavy yeah. 120 inch by 70 inch slab is. They think guys are going to be able to carry like five. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if anybody's ever seen it, but it's, it's, it's asinine. Yeah. You just look at it you're like, guys, there's no way that's going to work. Yeah. There's no way. That's funny. Yeah. That level of thinking on the design side usually comes in, you know, a few years after well, quite a few years after being in the industry and working and seeing what you design and how, how it does not work. Just the reality. Right. So like, and it, it's not a knock, like you guys start with a concept from a, from an artistic standpoint, let's say, right. Like on paper. Well then the more kind of like uh, the fight club gal again, uh, building fight club. Uh, oh, Christine. Like her example, when she went to the job site to see how certain things were done, you know what I mean? It's like, you start to understand and learn. And that's why I always tell people, I'm like, go, like go into the field and see this stuff yeah. because you really need to understand how it goes together. If you're going to do your job properly, just like the designers that we have mm-hmm. that, that, um, help people, you know, kind of do the colorations for the house. I'm like, you need to see how this stuff works Yeah, because you can't understand it until you honestly know how it comes together and how it's actually put together how it interacts, how, you know, the different things, like what, a, like what the staircase transition is going to look like with these three different materials you have right there. Like it's not going to work, Yeah. but until you go physically see it, it's like, Oh, you know, one of those kind of things or someone goes like, you look at the person and go, here, you try and get this cabinet up there. <laughs> yeah. like, like, you know, Oh yeah, that is a problem. Okay. Maybe we should just do bases and uppers. Yeah. You yeah. Know, like that kind of thing. So we run into a lot of that type of stuff, which, you know, I think that's why you always have so many different, you know, even if minor changes, like a frame walks, you know what I mean? Like, cause the trades finally get in there and like, yeah, this isn't going to work. You know what I mean? Like, there's no way I can do this. Yeah. I mean, I, one of the ones that I love from a cabinetry perspective is they take the dishwasher and shove it all the way into the corner of like a U kitchen. Mm-hmm. And it's like right here, it's 24 inches off. I'm like with a, with a cabinet door and a handle, I can't open it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like those types, like, how do you see that? So um, so some of those design things where we have to change those and it, and it creates a situation where things go offset and, or you got to cut stuff down on site, which is dangerous and, you know, all those other kind of things. So, all right. We did. Off. We're in a different direction. Yeah, that. we did. Yeah. Uh, but we, uh, we made it the whole time. So, uh, we will cut this conversation and, uh, and then we have another episode coming out tomorrow, Wednesday. Uh, this conversation will be about designing for childhood. Um, so that'll be a good conversation where we have a guest from Curbed, for those that know Curbed. But until then, we'll see you next time for Express on Thursday. Thanks. This show is part of the Gable Media Network. You can check out similar content at gablemedia.com. That's G A B L media.com you can help support what we're doing here by leaving a five-star rating and a review on your preferred podcasting app it helps others find us and your support is the only way that this show grows and don't forget to connect with us through our facebook community instagram and see the random thoughts and articles that we share on twitter and linkedin thank you again for spending some time with us talk soon
Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLamey, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm.